Man, well, good morning. Thanks so much for being here with us at Citizens. I was, <coughs> you know, reminded because football's in, 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 in full gear, and, you know, I went to the state game last night, and um, my brother-in-law has really good seats, so I've been to a few Carolina games against my will. Um, but I was reminded, you know, two weeks ago, I, I, I love college football, but I'm more of a professional football fan. Uh, my team doesn't have a name, um, and we're not that great, but I am a Washington fan. And, you know, <laughs> they have no name and they have no skills, so they're really making tickets affordable to get you into the stadium. And so, you know, I don't get to go to, like, a Sunday game, even if I could, like it's in Washington. And so they played the Giants um, week two, Thursday night football. And so me and my wife, Emily, she'd never been to a Washington game. She doesn't understand, like, she watches them on TV and she's like, you root for a loser. Like, why do you like this team? And I'm like, you just need to go to a game and experience it. So we went... Um, to the Thursday night game when they played the Giants. And, man, the game was incredible. Like, it was just, it was back and forth. I, I will say within the first five minutes, I figured I had wasted um, two days of my life and about, you know, 70 bucks for tickets and 150 for hotel because the Giants just, like, came right down the field and marched it, you know? So I was like, man, this is, this is my life. Like, I chose to be here, and it's misery. However, it came to the end of the game, and Washington had a last-second kick. Last second field goal to win the game. It was about 39 yards, I believe. Um, it might have been a little bit further back, but I was just like, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. Like, all these Giants fans are, are in the stadium, and they're talking junk, and, like, we're, we're going to miss it. Sure enough, Dustin Hopkins. Dustin Hopkins, if you're listening to this at some point, I know you're getting ready for the Atlanta Falcons today, <laughs> but I take back everything that I said about you because in this moment, he missed the kick. And people left, they were like, I'm gone. People started walking up the aisle because they were kicking on the opposite side of the field that we were on. So you could not see this little yellow piece of cloth that is a flag. And what had happened, what had happened was the Giants had jumped off sides. So certain defeat was in the air because Dustin Hopkins missed this field goal. But the Giants jumped off sides. So what that did was the Giants are celebrating and then all of a sudden they're not. Because Dustin Hopkins gets a chance at redemption. So they move the ball up five yards. And I'm like, I literally remember turning around. There was this husband and wife behind us. And, you know, I was high-fiving everybody. And I'm like, I, I don't even believe in this. So it's a little bit like paganistic. But the, the football gods have given us a chance. And they're like, you're right. You're right. So we're like, oh, he has to make this kick. And he makes it. He makes it. And they win the game. And I'm telling you guys. Emily was hooked on Washington football after that. She's looking up Panther tickets when they come to Charlotte to play. She's asking if we can just maybe like miss a Sunday and go to another game. Like she was hooked because she saw for her first, you know, NFL game that she remembers, she saw the sure agony of defeat. But then the awe and the celebration and the no, 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 we're not going to lose. We're going to win this freaking game. And they did. They might not win again, but we saw their one win. And I say that because today as we continue throughout the book of Esther, evil is being reversed. Sure agony has been in the cards the entire time we've been in the book of Esther. I mean, I'm not going to recap it all because we're seven chapters in, and so each week it gets a little bit longer to recap what's happened. But some big things that have happened, Vashti's out, Queen Esther is in, Mordecai will not bow, who is Esther's cousin. Mordecai will not bow to this evil man named Haman. Haman can't stand that Mordecai won't bow, and so we saw last week, where, or two weeks ago, Mordecai, or Haman's wife, 
was like, here's what you need to do about Mordecai. You have everything, but you don't have this guy's allegiance. So just build a gallow, kill him, and then go to the banquet that Queen Esther has invited you and the king to attend. And so what we see is Haman builds the gallows, but then last week, the king is, you know, wants a bedtime story because he can't sleep, and he says, bring in the book. And when the king reads the book or has the book read to him, he realizes that this same man, Mordecai, about five years prior, had stopped an assassination attempt on his life but was never rewarded. And so the king is like, how is this so? We gotta, we gotta, we gotta reward this guy. We gotta celebrate this guy. So Haman, while he's plotting the destruction of not just Mordecai but all Jewish people, the king is thinking, something needs to be done for Mordecai the Jew. So we saw last week where Haman walks into the king's basically bedroom and the king is like, hey, what must be done for the man that the king wants to honor? And Haman, you know, because he's full of pride and arrogance and we know what assuming does, he has to be talking about me. So Haman's like, here's what you need to do for the person that the king wants to honor. You need to throw that, 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 that son of a gun on a horse. You need to put your royal robe around him. You need to parade him through the city and tell everybody that this is the king. This is the man that the king wants to honor. And so Haman's like, well, he's definitely talking about me. So yeah, that, that's what we should do. And it turns out that we saw the Jew Mordecai was elevated. And it starts to turn the table a little bit on seeing the Jewish man elevated and the evil one who's come against God's people and the Lord himself goes home with his head covered. Yet Haman still has a banquet to attend. Queen Esther has put together two banquets for the king and for Haman. And as we begin Esther chapter 7 today, we see that this is the second banquet and where Queen Esther is going to make her request before the king. And we'll see what happens. So Esther chapter 7, it'll be on the screen you can flip there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the lobby that are completely free. Um, if, if, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please, 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 this is our plea every week, right? Take one. Take one because this is not Adam's words. There's nothing special about my words, but we really believe that when we open this book together that there's words of life. Even in a book like Esther where we're like, what do we do with this? The name of God is never mentioned. What's going on here? Even there, we can find words of life. So if you don't have a copy of Scripture, please, please, please grab one on your way out. But if not, it'll be up on the screen. Here we go. Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. And once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, we've seen this before, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even half of the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. She's repeating exactly what Haman said he was going to do. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. So we've heard this before, right? We, we, we've heard this, this, this invitation from the king last week. Queen Esther, whatever it is, up to half my kingdom, whatever it is, what is your desire? And I will give it to you. Now, what's interesting about this is I'm sure the king, I mean, he has, he has every possession that anybody could want. I mean, he, he rules 127 provinces. There's gold goblets and, and, and gold and silver. He has everything. And he's probably thinking, Queen Esther, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What possession would you want? I mean, the, the previous chapter, he was just presented with a request that, hey, you know what would, would be good to elevate the man and celebrate the man that you wish to honor? Give him material things. 
So the king is used to this. And the king is just thinking, man, what's Esther going to ask for? Riches? I mean, she has that. Maybe she wants a nice vacation on the coast of Greece. I mean, we just lost a war to those people, but maybe they'll let us back in. I don't know. What is Queen Esther going to ask for? And here's what she says, because Esther needs to be strategic. I mean, it's one thing to come before the king's throne, but what if she is to actually make her request and the king denies it? I mean, we've seen throughout the entire book of Esther, the the king calls the shots. The minute his first queen said no, she was banished. So Esther has to be strategic in how she asks this. Did, Did you notice that she was using the language of, if it pleases the king, if it would be okay with you, if you think this is a good idea, she has to be strategic. And it reminds me of like, you know, you go to the right parent for the right thing. Like, if I was in trouble, I would go to my mom. But if I wanted something, I'd go to my dad because he doesn't think about anything and he'll just, he'll just do it and give it. So, like, you know, that's just how it worked out. So, and, and maybe your kids are the same way. I, I don't have kids, but I would imagine that at some point your kids have come to you and it's like, well, well can I do this? And, and you might say, well, what did your mom say? Well, she said no. That's why I'm coming to you. <laughs> like, we know what parent to, to go for to be strategic in our asking. So Queen Esther has to be the exact same way. She has to be strategic in how she asks. And what does she say? Let's look back down at it. It'll be on the screen, verse 3. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, we know that she has, your majesty, and if it, is, if it pleases the king, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people, notice the language here, my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. But if we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent because indeed the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. Esther's answer was structured just as the king's question was asked. Right? Queen Esther, what do you want? Whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, I will, it, I will be, it will be given to you. What would you desire? And structurally and grammatically, Esther answers like this. Spare my life. This is my request. Spare my people. This is my desire. And then in verse 4, when she says, my people, we see Queen Esther is finally identifying herself with the Jewish people. She's finally identifying herself and saying, those people, that they have a bounty on their head. Those are my people. I identify with those people, and I identify in those people in the danger. See, Esther is queen. But she is taking a stand, and she's drawing a line in the sand, if you will, saying, this is my desire. My desire is not physical possessions. My desire and my request is the lives of innocent people that have a bounty on their head. My request is that I would identify with the people, and she uses her queenness. She uses her queenness. She uses her authority for not material things. Because I I just wonder about this. Like, if all the Jews are killed... Who's to say that, like, Esther doesn't have to come out and say, I'm a Jewish woman as well. Esther could have lived in this palace. But she identifies with the people. And we hear situations time and time again of kings and queens, people of authority, using their status to abuse others. I mean, we saw this, right? King Xerxes did that. He used his kingship to abuse hundreds of women to see which one will please me and become the queen. It's easy, and we've talked about this, that in times of authority... It's not that you have to have authority to do sinful things, but when you're granted power and authority, it might just come a little bit more natural. And here, Esther is using her power and authority 
not to get something from people, but to save them. And while the name of God is never mentioned within the book of Esther, we have to turn our minds not to a queen, but to a king who would identify with the same sort of people. Before we go any further, let me just encourage you with this, that Jesus identifies with us. You see, just like Queen Esther, all the authority, all the, royal need, all the, 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 the royalty that you could, could want or wish, she leveraged that for the good of people who the king didn't really care about. And in the same way, Philippians 2 would tell us that Jesus actually put aside all that was due to him and would come in flesh and identify with us. You see, this is a big pillar in our faith, that when we talk about a man, Jesus, we, we're talking about a historical man. We're not talking about a man who came, but he had a form, right? It was like he, he, he was sort of like a man, but he wasn't. We're not talking about a man who came, but didn't assume the same brain that you and I had. We're talking about a man who would come and assume flesh, would assume our brain, would assume emotions, would assume the, 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 the hunger pains of a stomach, would assume temptation even. And I love what an ancient school of thought says, that that which he did not assume, he cannot redeem. Jesus has to assume all those things, or he cannot redeem them. It's only Jesus who assumed our body that can redeem our body. It's only Jesus who assumed a human brain, a human mind, and human emotions that can redeem our human brain, human mind, and human emotions. Only that which he assumed can he redeem. Or the writer of Hebrews says it like this, it'll be on the screen. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And then notice what he says in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Jesus is the king who came to identify his people. He put aside his royal rights and identified with us. Yet notice the difference. Yet without sin. Jesus can redeem not just because he assumed everything that it meant to become a human being. But because he was the flawless human being who lived 33 years without sin. And who can satisfy the wrath of God? Only God himself. The Bible tells us that Jesus. Jesus, as many you know, uh, majestic things that it says about him. That he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, we read in the Old Testament. The Bible also tells us that this man, Jesus, would come as a lamb that was to be slaughtered. Guys, he had a body that could die. There was real blood. There was real sweat. Jesus died because they beat the crap out of him. He's a real human being. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that he can identify, and maybe in here it's just good news this morning, that there is someone who can sympathize with you. Who knows what you're walking through? And maybe you're walking through something and you're thinking, no one knows what I'm going through. No one can understand. Adam, not even you. And I would say that's 100% true. 
Yet the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, who will sympathize in our weakness, who understands what it's like to be a human being. Jesus knew what it was like to celebrate at a wedding. Jesus knew what it was like to weep when your friend passes away. That is who Jesus is. He is the king who identifies with us. And he can identify with you. So whatever you're going through right now that you hate, the good news is Jesus hates it too. If there's something going on in your life, someone has just passed away, someone has just been given a diagnosis, you turn on the news and it's just hell in our world. You know who hates these things more than you do? Not me. Jesus. The Son of God. The Son of God detests evil. He detests oppression. He is the God of justice. That is what the new heaven and new earth will be. Justice. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us. Because that means as we read these things in the book of Esther... We know that God is using fractured people for his flawless purposes because he cannot stand in the face of evil and let it happen. Jesus hates evil more than we do, and he is identified with us. Just as Queen Esther has identified with the Jewish people in this moment, Jesus identifies with you. I hope that's good news for someone. Let's keep reading Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 5. So this is where the king Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, responds to Esther. Esther has made her request, and she has made it clear. Spare my people. Spare my life. Because I'm in here with them. And King Ahasuerus says this in verse 5. He spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Verse 6, Esther answered, The adversary and the enemy is the evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. So he's not as strong as he thought he was, huh? Verse 7, the king arose in anger and went from there where they were drinking, from drinking wine to the palace garden. So he leaves the room. And Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized that the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling onto the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am still in the house? As soon as this statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So our story has taken a turn. Esther pulls back, no, you know, she, she doesn't, she, she, she gives him the old one-two jab right here. Like, like, who is the one that has done this? She's not like, well, you know, there's this guy in the province. Where, it's like, no, 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 that guy, you see him? Hey, Haman, stand up. Yeah, that guy. And the king rises in anger and leaves. Now, the question for us is, why is the king angry? Haman has conspired to kill all the Jews, which would include the queen. So the king could be angry because it's like, not only have you devised to kill the Jews, but now my queen is saying that she's Jewish and you're trying to come against my queen. But does he care that much about Esther? That's the question. Because, like, in the beginning, he found she found favor with him, but, you know, just a few chapters ago, she hadn't been summoned to him in 30 days. So does he care that much about Esther? We don't really know. But that could be the first reason. The second reason could be is because he realized that Haman has tricked him. Yes, Haman did it, but whose royal signet ring approved it? It was the king's. And so the king could be angry in this moment because he realizes, I thought this was a trusted official. And now he's making me look stupid. 
I devised or I, I approved a plan to kill my own queen. He could be frustrated, could be mad. And so King Xerxes leaves. And this is where you talk about between a rock and a hard place. What is Haman to do? I mean, because this is just straight up awkward. Like, if Haman is to chase the king out, number one, that, that's probably not what you can do with the king. But if he's to go out there, he's admitting that he did this. Because he's running after the king, and certainly that would probably end in death. But he's also now alone with Queen Esther, which no one was allowed to be alone with the queen except the king. And that could be death. And as I was studying this passage, I was reminded of something that has taken our world over by storm, and that is called Squid Games. Netflix, you know, it, they've done it again. Something mindlessly entertaining um, that, you know, I, I, I guess it's like the Hunger Games in, in Asia. And, um, and Squid Games, if you don't know, I'm not going to spoil it, but I was hooked too. Um, basically, these people that are in debt, they're, they're taken to this game site, and they're, they're made to do these little childhood games. And if you don't play or you lose, they just shoot you in the head right there. Yeah, it's crazy. I saw some people like, really? Is that what happened? Yeah, that's what happens. And so there's one part where like, they have to cross this glass bridge, and there's two panels. And one panel is real glass that can hold two people, or the other uh, panel is like plexiglass. You'll fall through it. And they have to do it. Like, you either do that, or you're, you're shot right there on the platform. So these people have no choice but to play the game. But it looks like death either way. And that's kind of where Haman is right now. Like, Haman could jump on this glass and chase the king out. And it may be okay, but probably not. Or Haman could jump on, on Queen Esther. And it's at this moment that he really seals his fate. Because as, as, as King Xerxes is walking in, he's falling on to his wife. Now, I don't really believe, nor do any commentators believe, that Haman was doing anything other than begging Esther for his life. He wasn't trying to sexually assault her. He wasn't trying to really do anything to her except beg for his life. But King Xerxes is like, would you really do this with my wife while I'm still in the house? And so now King Xerxes prob probably isn't even thinking of the scheme, right? Now Haman has sealed his own fate just by assaulting and falling on to the king's wife. In fact, it's pretty interesting that uh, in the Aramaic version of the Old Testament, which is called the Targum, the Targum of Esther, um, the Aramaic version actually says that it was the, the angel um, Gabriel who pushed Haman onto Esther, that it was kind of sealing his fate. Our translation doesn't say that, but I think it's pretty interesting. Haman is now begging for his life. Haman is now falling on Queen Esther because she is the one who holds really his life in her hands. He knows that the king is going to do something. But maybe he can convince Queen Esther to spare his life. And unfortunately, that's not what happens. Let's look back down at it. Esther chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, where we will end this morning. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, You know, <laughs> there's some gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai. And Mordecai was the guy who gave the report to save the king. <laughs> and the king says, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. This is a big LOL moment. Like, hey, you know, here's, here's what we can do. This, this Harbona who was like, I, I guess he was the fly on the wall sitting in a chair somewhere. And the king is angry now. And this man's like, hey, 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 king, 
you know, I don't know if you'd be interested in this, but, you know, Haman actually built these gallows that it was for Mordecai. I mean, you could hang him on that. The king's like, that's a great idea. This is the first time that the king has taken advice, and it was like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. So they hang him on it. In our English translation, when we read gallows, it denotes hanging someone, right? Like asphyxiation, like, like hanging someone with a noose. But that's not what was happening here. We know from history that the Persians, when they would hang people on gallows, they would actually impale them. So this is like a Haman shish kebab. Like Haman is, is put on this large pointy stick, and I guess he just slowly slides down. I don't know what he does, but, but he was impaled. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just, you know, this is it's God's word. It's not Adam's, okay? This is what happened. <laughs> and so Haman is now dead. And for the last few moments that we have together, let's just address the elephant in the room. And maybe you caught this as we were reading uh, the book of Esther. I mean, if Esther is a Jewish woman who is committed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, our God, well, why wouldn't she just forgive Haman and stop the decree? I mean, honestly, we, we have to ask that question. Why wouldn't Queen Esther just say, spare Haman's life, maybe put him in prison, and stop the decree? I mean, because as much as Haman sealed his own fate, Esther did say, hey, we, sh- we should kill him. We should kill him. So what do we do with this? And this is where we see that context is key. Any passage of scripture that you are reading, look at the surrounding context. So that's the one caveat. The second caveat is, and, and we just got to be honest up here, be okay with not understanding something. Be okay with reading something that you're like, I, I don't know what to do with this. But let's give it a shot. Think about the historical context of the book of Esther. A few weeks ago, we mentioned that King Saul, long before Esther, was told to destroy Agag, right, the, the, the king who has come against the people of God. Agag was the first king and the first ruler to come against the Jewish people. And through the prophet Samuel, Saul is told to kill King Agag. Do not spare his life. Do not spare the people. Destroy them. Well, Saul doesn't do that. He lets them live. And now we see that Haman, maybe not a direct descendant, but obviously identified as a descendant of Agag in this story, these people are still still ruthlessly going after God's people. So there's historical context here that in killing Haman, Esther is doing what her ancestors should have done back then. The historical context that it could be that God is using Esther to fulfill this ordinance, this command that shouldn't have even been in Esther's hands in the first place. If Saul would have just done what the Lord commanded him, this might not be happening, but it is. And so we have the historical concept of this, that that Esther's just fulfilling this promise that God had. But the interesting thing here is that God is not using an army because that raises the question, well, what do we do with, with God telling Saul to kill King Agag? I mean, do we work through holy wars anymore? I mean, as people of faith, can we justify the holy wars? I mean, when, when, when God commands his people to kill another army, and take all their possessions, and leave no one alive, can we justify that? And I'm not going to give you the answer, because this is something you should wrestle with. It would be easy for me to stand up here and say, well, that's, you know, what God says is, is good. 
And just by definition, God can do some things that we don't have to understand. I mean, he is God and I am not. But honestly, I think this is something God would have us wrestle with. It's an elephant in the room for a reason. And so, is Esther just following an historical ordinance of God? Maybe. But more than getting caught up on that, I want you to hear this, because we don't know why Esther is in this situation. She just is. And here's what we see. That wherever you find yourself, God will use you. Wherever you find yourself. We've been, like, this is just beating a dead horse at this point, because you might be thinking, Adam, we get it. God will use us wherever we're at. Wherever we're at, God will use us. Like, like we get it. But do you? Do you really? Because a lot of times we think about, like, where I'm at being a physical thing. Like, Esther is in this time period, in this empire, with specific people. But could God also be using wherever you're at, maybe emotionally, spiritually? I mean, do you have anything to offer God or us if you were spiritually empty feeling? I mean, yeah, we know that God has, God has you where you're at physically for a reason, but what if he has you in your raw emotions? What if he has you in your spiritual emptiness where you're like, I just don't have anything to give? What if God is using you in that place? And that wherever you find yourself, whether it's confusing or whether it makes all the sense in the world, that God, like Esther, could use you. But then there's also the cultural context of this. Not only the historical context, but the cultural context of the book of Esther. Haman was, was waging destruction against the people who were already oppressed and weaker. Haman did not pick a strong army to go against. He picked the weaker vessel. And Esther, the book of Esther, shows us that evil is personal, and it always is. Evil is always personal. It's always the powerful that pick on the powerless. And that's what Haman is doing. What was God to do? I mean, maybe you're wrestling with, like, I don't know what to do with the God who destroys an entire people group because they've come against his people. But on the flip side, what do we do with the God who sees injustice, sees evil, and just lets it happen? I mean, would this story be better if God allowed this plot to just play out? I mean, yeah, Esther didn't commit murder or violence or do the wrong thing. But all the Jewish people were annihilated. What are we to do with that? I mean, Haman was not forced to do this. He did it on, of his own accord. But still, the elephant in the room is, there's a lot of violence here. There's murder here. I mean, what about our God who says, turn the other cheek, right? It's only going to be a couple thousand years after this that the same God would come and say, hey, when, when your enemy punches you, let him just punch you on the other side of the face too. What happened? Like th These are two different things. Let's be honest. What do we do with it? And honestly, we're not done with the book of Esther yet, but spoiler alert, there's really no nice little bow on this story thus far. There's some things in this story that we may not understand. There's some things in this story that, that we have to take in faith. There's some things in this story that we have to examine history, examine the culture, just examine the context. And this is a hard passage to teach because it's a hard passage to answer. However, this is what we can be certain of. Because maybe you're in here and you're thinking, yeah, that's a weird scandal. I mean, Esther. 
you're a Jewish woman. You follow the God of peace. You follow the God of life, and you just chose death for this man. Esther, you probably could have stopped it. He was begging for his life. And maybe you read that as a scandal. But here's what we can be, we can be sure of as people living in 2021 in Kernersville, North Carolina, or wherever you find yourself. That the biggest scandal of all time is Jesus in your place. The biggest scandal of all time, it's not Haman dying. The biggest scandal of all time is that the same God who created everything would come and actually die in your place. Like, yes, we should wrestle with this. But we should wrestle even more so with Jesus. How in the world would you redeem a sinful man like me? And it took your life? Don't get so caught up in what we can't really know that we miss what we know for sure. And this isn't trying to caveat, this isn't trying to get away from that question, God, what were you doing for thousands of years before you came as a man? I mean, the killing is not done in Esther. <laughs> we're going to get to some more murders in the book of Esther. But we know that as people who have found Jesus, that we did not receive life and we did not receive Jesus just because he came and touched my spine with a tingly Holy Spirit. It took the Son of God dying. There was bloodshed. And we were the ones who deserved death, but we have received mercy. Yes, evil is being reversed in this story. But it could be even closer than that for you. You see, your life may be hard. And there may be circumstances that come your way that you have no idea how to handle. You have no idea why they're happening. You have no idea why, God, you would allow this. I have no idea how God is working, how he's using it, how, like, any of this. It's just chaos. But in Jesus, it's not the reversing of circumstances, but it is the reversing of death. That your heart, that scripture would say, is actually stone cold without Jesus. That scripture would say your heart is actually dead, can come alive because of Jesus. The greatest scandal of all time is that Jesus would give you and I life. I mean, let's just be honest. I know my heart more than I know any of y'all's heart, so I, I, I can raise my hand and say I'm probably the worst person in this room. My heart is so deceptive. There are so many things that I'm like, why am I doing this? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? Why did I treat this person that way? Our heart is so deceptive sometimes. Yet Jesus is saying, that's exactly what I want. That is the greatest scandal of all time. It makes no sense. Jesus, you were the sinless one, but yet you died for the sinful. That doesn't make you wrestle a little bit. We're just okay with that. That makes sense. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But that's what makes our God unique. No other religion claims that. No other school of thought claims that. And Jesus is the king who would identify with you, who would take your sin, take your guilt, take your death, and give you life. Evil is being reversed. No one will thwart the plans of God, and his people are going to live on because of the characters in this story. But you're also in the story. I hope that you see you're in the story. I hope that you see that you can be used wherever you're at right now. And we can use you in this church. Your coworkers can use you. Your family needs you. Your school, wherever you find yourself, 
You are needed because you were part of this story too. And so may we take hope, take courage, take peace that God is working in the midst of these things. Even we don't understand it, even we got to wrestle with it, even when it leaves this weird feeling in our chest. God is working all things.